Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. During the Second World War, as entire East European Jewish communities were being slaughtered, Yiddish writers and intellectuals began to take stock of the damage done to Yiddish life and culture. Among them was the writer and journalist Nachman Blumenthal. Nachman Blumenthal returned from Ufa, from the unoccupied Soviet Union, to eastern Poland in the spring of 1944, and he was shocked at what he heard. This is Hannah Poland Galai, an assistant professor in the Department of Literature at Tel Aviv University and the incoming director of the Goldreif Yiddish Institute there. Blumenthal was shocked, Poland Galai says, because although he was from eastern Poland and spoke the dialect of Yiddish common there, when he spoke to survivors, he heard words and phrases he didn't recognize. Having been able to look through his archive, I can see his notes and scraps of paper from that moment where he actually began jotting down words that he didn't understand. And he has this, these really compelling memories of sitting with survivors or displaced persons, as they were called at the time, in Poland after the war. And listening to them swap stories among one another and him interrupting constantly and saying, wait, what was that? What does that word mean? Fascinated, Blumenthal began researching and recording what Poland Galai calls Chorben or Holocaust Yiddish. And he wasn't alone. Blumenthal discovered that the Ringelblum archive, compiled by historian Emanuel Ringelblum and others in the Warsaw Ghetto, also recorded new Yiddish words and phrases. Another survivor, historian and essayist Yisrael Kaplan, also recorded examples of Holocaust Yiddish immediately after the war, even while sick with typhus in a hospital. And he grabs a hold of random scraps of paper and writes down Yiddish words that have been invented in the Holocaust. Blumenthal, Kaplan, and others published dictionaries of Holocaust Yiddish. And in studying them, Poland Galai has found that the words and phrases can be grouped into three broad categories. One includes words related to law and morality. For example, Shabrevin. So if you say Shabrevin to a regular Yiddish speaker who's not connected to the Holocaust, they're likely to have no idea what you were talking about. Because, Poland Galai says, the word didn't exist before the Holocaust. So what does it mean? It means looting the, the possessions of Jewish homes after those Jews have been deported from the ghetto. Blumenthal's definition adds a note of uncertainty. Blumenthal phrases it like this, shabrevin or shabrin, there's different versions of the word too, means looting or taking ownerless possessions. So in that or, he's leaving this space to say, I don't know if this is right or wrong. Is this stealing? In a pre-Holocaust moral framework, taking the possessions of a neighbor who'd been carted off to jail would obviously be wrong. But during the Holocaust, when survival was at stake, the very concepts of wrong and right became twisted. And so the morality of Shabrevin wasn't obvious. Since it's actually illegal for Jews to be alive, essentially, at this moment, how can we say what's lawful and unlawful? Fighting for your own existence is, in a way, 
de facto against the law. So how do we know what kind is okay and what kind is not? So it's looting or taking ownerless possessions. Shabrevin became such a widely used term among Yiddish speakers during the war that when Jewish representatives from Palestine came to Eastern Europe to report on the state of the Jews after the war and to encourage them to immigrate to Israel, they were struck by the word's prevalence. There's an essay in the, the Israeli press at this time saying the most important word that you need to know if you want to understand Jewish refugees is Shabrovin. The essay explained that being a Shabrovnik was considered to be the lowest of the low. This is the low to which our people has sunk, and they're using this word to describe a type of moral corruption that they see has been forced upon the Jewish people of Eastern Europe, and at the same time, upon the Yiddish language. So there's this parallel between the the corruption of the Yiddish language and the corruption of Jewish moors. Another broad category of Holocaust Yiddish, Poland Galai says, is sexuality, specifically the erotic female body. In one camp, in the Skarżyska Kamina camp, there was this word called kuzinke, which just means a female cousin in regular Yiddish. And in Chorban Yiddish, in Holocaust Yiddish, it means a very specific type of exploitative sexual practice. Specifically, in the camps, Kuzinka meant to pretend to be someone's cousin to get alone time with them and have an affair. Supposedly, it was a man who initially invented the term. So somebody said, you know, oh, why are you spending all this time with this girl? Why are you giving her your extra food? Why are you, you know, giving her extra supplies when you have them? And he blurts out, oh, she's my Kuzinka. Like Shabrovin, Kuzinka spread like wildfire throughout the ghettos and camps. And as it did, its meaning changed. The term became used as a put-down for women who seemed easy or if they enjoyed putting on makeup. Oh, she's a Kuzinke. You know, she's using our weakness at the moment or the fact that we're not near our wives and our family to, to seduce us and exploit us. It may seem surprising that starving and brutalized Jews in the camps thought about sex at all. But, Poland Galai says, words like kuzinka are proof that they did, and that Jews invented new terms to express anxiety about sexuality. The way of talking about their bodies and talking about human connection and their loss of capacity, they weren't allowed to love. And I think that talking about eroticism and talking about sex in general was a way of doing this. Kuzinka also suggests that if the Nazi image of the Jew as corrupt was penetrating into Jewish self-perception, it was happening through women. And it, of course, also doubles physically as a type of, like, penetration into the Jewish body politic, into the Jewish body of the woman. So this is a source of anxiety. It's a way of people expressing their fears about how they've been corrupted as a people. Another example of a Holocaust Yiddish term related to sexuality is the word people. It means a male prostitute, a young boy who was exploited for the sexual pleasures of someone in the camp elite. Polangalai says that Yiddish survivor historians described a people as something like a male, scaled-up version of a kuzinka, and it spoke to a deeper and even more troubling form of corruption. The Jewish people has been so disempowered and so emasculated and so feminized that men are becoming like women, which means they're becoming completely corruptible physically and morally. 
The term people became a flashpoint for discussion, almost like a modern-day meme, appearing in many sources and documents. Most famously, it appears in Elie Wiesel's Holocaust memoir, Night. In the scene, uh, the hanging scene, where there's a young uh, blonde boy who's hanged in front of a crowd, Elie Wiesel, or, or Eliezer in the book, this is the moment when he says, I saw the boy hanging. And that, at that point, I said, where is God? In the text, Wiesel describes the boy as a people. What's fascinating, Polangalai says, is that when the original Yiddish version of the book was translated into other languages, Wiesel edited the text to appeal to the sensibilities of non-Yiddish readers. But he deliberately left in people, unexplained and untranslated. And I think that speaks to, number one, what a powerful symbol this word was at the time, how much this captured that feeling of penetration and corruption and anxiety and self-disgust. And also a kind of a wink and a nod to the reader saying, you really can't understand everything here. A third category of Holocaust Yiddish is animal references. There was a word, a loiserin, which is like a female louse. But it's not clear if that's the louse who's a female or it's the female who's a louse, if it's the human woman who's become louse-like. Holocaust Yiddish dictionaries include several terms connected to lice, which speaks to the anxiety, Polangalai says, that Jews were internalizing and realizing Nazi propaganda that depicted Jews as animals. We are eating, foraging like them. We don't have culture. We can't write as much. We can't engage. We don't control our language like we used to. Our language is becoming animalistic. Polangalai also studies the work of writers who used Holocaust Yiddish. For example, the Yiddish poet Chava Rosenfar began writing in the Lodge Ghetto during World War II. The poems that she wrote in the Lodge Ghetto were thrown into the trash when she and her family were deported to Auschwitz. And in Auschwitz, she continued to compose poems in her minds and memorize them. When Rosenfarb was liberated, she wrote down the poems she'd composed in her head, using Holocaust Yiddish to create a poetic testament to her experience in the camps. In the introduction to her first book of poems, published in 1947, she explained that the reader was going to have to learn a lot of new Yiddish words. And she says, that's really important. I want these words to become symbols of our experience. And I want these words to become everyone's property, Alemin's Egentum. For Polangalai, Rosenfarb's use of Holocaust Yiddish in her poetry was a way of challenging readers. It's saying, I want you to come to me. This is the language. This is the music that I heard in the ghetto. And I want to write in that music. And if you weren't there and you don't get my music, I want you to learn it. And so it's a statement of dignity towards herself and towards her community. It's about vocal recognition, hearing us as we spoke. Take, for example, the poem Tebetze Balade, the title of which translates roughly to tuberculosis ballad, Tebetze being a Yiddishization of the German word for tuberculosis. Rosenfarb's intention, Polangalai says, was to demonstrate how Holocaust Yiddish can be both poetical in its sounds and rhythms, and at the same time, a reference to what it's like to be a victim. What it's like to be completely helpless, what it's like to have everything, including your own words, taken from you and misshapen and thrown back in your face without asking you. And on the other hand, she's saying, 
I'm still here. My mind is working. My ears are working. My creativity is still working. And I'm going to take this and do something with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create this back and forth between the pain and the victimization of this experience and language and also the resourcefulness of Jews speaking new languages and, and speaking to each other and building something new out of them. Rosenfarb perfected her technique in a three-volume, nearly 2,000-page novel that not only submerges the reader in a world suffused with Holocaust Yiddish, but also responds to the archetype in much Holocaust writing of the Jewish woman as a symbol of degradation and corruption. That's something invaluable that Hava Rosenfarb gives us, what it's like to be inside that symbolic web where you are the symbol of corruption and loss and weakness. She creates this network of Jewish female characters who are incredibly erotic, but they're erotic in the way they want to be. She reclaims the metaphor in a sense and twists it on its head and says, yes, women were eroticized and erotic in the war. And in my memory world that I'm building, I'm going to give those women the right to have been erotic agents in the way they wanted to be. Rosenfarb has remained relatively obscure until fairly recently. But another writer polling Galay studies, the provocative poet and novelist Katsetnik, is among the most famous and widely read Israeli writers. His best-known work, House of Dolls, about female Jewish prostitutes in Auschwitz, was an international bestseller. Born Yechiel Feiner in Poland, Katsetnik originally wrote some of his novels in Yiddish and then translated them into Hebrew. Studying the Yiddish versions, Polan Galai notes a subplot about language, wherein Katsetnik plays with Holocaust Yiddish in a way similar to Rosenfarb. Take, for example, his big, huge metaphor, which is the house of dolls, the Jewish prostitutes in Auschwitz who are branded with a word. They're branded with the word Feldhure, which is a German word, but it's a crossover. It's used in Yiddish language. But what's that about? That's about forcing language onto someone's body, forcing new language onto somebody's body, which is exactly the story of Holocaust Yiddish that other people are telling. Pairing Rosenfarb with a flamboyant Katsetnik, who tried to destroy his Yiddish manuscripts and gave theatrical testimony at the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem, may seem odd, Galai says, but they admired each other's writing and were in many ways opposite sides of the same coin. Katsetnik was a verbal party crasher. He wanted to get in everybody's face and show them how ugly Yiddish was, how ugly Jewish language was, how ugly he remained, right? If you think about him burning or, or cutting up his manuscripts, that's saying, I'm not going to obey the rules of language as usual. Jumping out of the, the witness box, you know, at the Eichmann trial, that's saying, I'm not going to stand here and talk the way that you, you want me to. I'm not going to make language go back to business as usual. No one has any right to do this after something this horrendous. We got to light everything on fire. Rosenfarb, Polangalai says, was doing the opposite. She's like the rebuilder. She's saying, I'm going to take this dirty language and I'm going to build it into something that I want to see myself in. I'm going to recreate this memory in a creative way and imagine what it would be like to put these people in a place of dignity and give this language a space of dignity in our memories. As director of the Goldreif Yiddish Institute at Tel Aviv University, Polangalai studies these and other examples of Holocaust Yiddish with not only her Jewish Israeli students, but also with Arab Israeli students. 
and she senses that both see Yiddish as an alternative way to explore Jewish history and identity and to look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict through a new lens. And I think they're interested in it for the same reason that Jewish students are interested in it, that it gives a new way in. You know, when sometimes cultural conflicts get so deeply embedded, they get stale and no one can really get, you know, unstuck from their narrative. And I think that Yiddish gives people a chance in Israel to get unstuck a bit and talk about things in a new way. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.